Thanks for joining Impact Boom. On this episode... For well-being to work well in a school, your leadership team actually has to be on board and not just on board with, oh yeah, we'll take the box. We've got well-being. We're here to support the students. They actually have to have a good understanding of what mental health is, how the school system can like support that structure. Welcome to impactboom.org. We search the globe to find the people, stories, ideas, and inspiration to help you create maximum positive impact. Each week, Impact Boom brings you thought-provoking interviews with world-leading practitioners passionate about creating positive social change. These designers, social entrepreneurs, educators, innovators, thinkers, and doers share their projects, initiatives, thoughts, and insights on creating a better world. You can find all the stories, links, and other great content at impactboom.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter for the latest updates or subscribe to the newsletter or on iTunes. Thanks for listening to episode 416 of Impact Boom. My name's Sarah and I'm passionate about visioning, empowering and contributing to initiatives and enterprises causing positive transformation locally and globally. Today, we're speaking with Anushka Pal. Anushka is a psychologist driving advocacy and change for minority communities across Australia. She's the founder of Umid Psychology, a psychology private practice and social enterprise which aims to provide accessible, culturally informed medical health care. She's a passionate advocate for youth mental health, working as a school psychologist and also working as a published researcher in this space. Anushka is an ambassador for the Australia New Zealand Mental Health Association and strives to make a global impact when it comes to mental health. She's also the founder of the Shaw Project, a founding member of the Guardians of the Pacific and a co-author for Undefeated, a professional migrant women project. On today's podcast, we will discuss how Anushka is passionately driving advocacy and change for minority communities across Australia, how Anushka is working in youth mental health, as well as her emerging work and research. Anushka, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me on board. I'm really excited about this. You're welcome. There's so much wonderful stuff that you're doing to get us rolling and to get a bit of an idea of what has led you to where you are now. Can you tell us a bit about your background? This is always such a difficult question for me because I'm like, what part of my background? I'm like, career-wise, who I am, all of it really is an amalgamation. I think the way that I like to introduce myself is that I am a New Zealand-born Fijian Indian who was raised in Australia. And obviously with that mixture or like that little hot pot of culture (laughs) it was really beautiful you know growing up bicultural and it's such a rich experience but it's also a very confusing one and I think why that's so important for me is as we keep talking it's really led me to do the things that I'm doing right now because of all of the various experiences that I've had throughout life so far I'm a psychologist I run my own private practice. I used to be a school psychologist as well, but at the moment, just focusing on the social enterprise side of things. Yeah, amazing. And could you tell us a little bit about your social enterprise and why it exists and what you do? Okay. So I'm going to take this back to like my roots here. So I just mentioned about like being bicultural, right? I moved to Australia in 2002. I was eight, nine years old. And when I first moved here, I distinctly remember my friends being so excited about tea time. And I was like, how cool 
everybody loves tea. I love tea. And then I learned here that tea actually means dinner. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because it was such a bizarre little nuance for my little brain at that time. Because I'm Fijian Indian, for us, tea, 5 p.m., that's like masala chai, it's biscuits, you're dipping that in, and that's how you do things. Tiny nuances like this keep coming up. I've been in this country for like 19 years, and still little things sometimes confuse me. I'm like, oh, didn't really know. The difficulty of growing up bicultural is that there are also these really big nuances that you have to navigate navigating your collectivistic culture, navigating your individualistic culture, growing up between what your parents' expectations are, what your community's expectations are. I was one of four brown kids in my school. So really feeling like you don't really belong anywhere. As a result of that, naturally, you end up going to therapy, you try and find yourself. You have all these questions and you're having all these discussions and you're trying to put these nuances out there. But what I found as somebody in their teens and then even into like my mid-20s was that, hey, like no one actually gets it. No one's really understanding what my perspective is. I have to spend maybe six of those 10 rebated sessions explaining my cultural background and why my problems are problems. And as I started to talk to people within my community and to friends, to family members, just even community members, I was like, oh, this is actually a real problem. A lot of people aren't seeking support because they feel like they're not going to be understood. And that's where me comes in, because when I became a psychologist or when I was studying to become a psychologist, my initial thought process was I really wanted to work with young people, hence being a school psychologist and working with young people and working around youth mental health. As I progressed, though, I think I started learning that there's actually such a shortage in the multicultural mental health space. And so one day after work I hopped onto southasiantherapist.org and I like signed myself up and was like just in case anyone ever needs it and we didn't come out of the way of you have like business plan then you plan it out and there's like the strategy around things it was very much I had my name up on this website somebody called me and I was like give me a week came home registered my AV and I was like it's fine I can help like one or two people after like my day job and this will be good. I'm like entering that space and maybe in four or five years time, I'll start like the practice really big and we'll see how it goes. And it blew up. It blew up over like the last two years. And we went from just me being a sole creator working and helping one or two people after school to us having a whole private practice. We provide like counseling and therapy and group therapy and consulting stuff. But then we have two other programs now. One is around mental health literacy so that we can work on that stigma that appears in multicultural communities. And then the other side is creating safe spaces. So we have a safe space program and one's for domestic violence, one's for South Asian women, one's for the LGBTQIA community. And that's just to create places where people can come and connect to each other. So it starts the conversations about, hey, you know, we're experiencing X, Y, Z and building up that social connection. And then they feed into each other. But that's kind of like where it started and where it's ended up. The whole purpose was because I really didn't want another generation of people to feel like they weren't heard or understood or safe when they're entering like a therapy space. Mm, amazing and as you said there's clearly a need because of how rapidly you've grown right yeah that was like a big surprise and, and like you know then being in this space and meeting other like-minded people has been so amazing because until I did like me then like it started growing I didn't actually start meeting other people who were like actually yeah no this is a problem and we're also working in this space and it's been really beautiful to see that you can be part of a community. Again, because of like the area that I'd grown up in and the way that I'd grown up, 
I wasn't seeing as many people that looked like me or were experiencing what I was experiencing. And so it felt like a very lonely process. Like when I was in uni, I remember thinking, oh my God, am I going to have to do all of this work by myself? Holy shit. Yeah. And even like, you know, doubting yourself, is this problem actually a problem? Which is also why I did my research in the area when I was in my master's around intergenerational family conflict in Asian Australians. Interesting. And of course, as you mentioned before, you were a school psychologist yeah. and strong advocate in the youth mental health space and published research on student trauma. Yeah. And the impacts for biculturalism and intergenerational family conflict on Asian Australians. Can you tell us more about some of those key findings? Yeah, so two different research projects. My first one in my honours year, which is the published one, focused on how do we support school leadership in supporting students who are undergoing trauma, basically. One of the, the key things to understand here is that for well-being to work well in a school, your leadership team actually has to be on board and not just on board with like, oh yeah, we'll take the box. We've got well-being. We're here to support the students. They actually have to have a good understanding of what mental health is, how the school system can like support that structure, et cetera, et cetera. And what the research focused on was doing these interviews with principals and assistant principals and finding out how much do you know and what we really learned was that it's not a lot it's not a lot because in tertiary education you're not learning about mental health and its impact you're not learning how to pick up on it understanding how that impacts education and any of the training that a lot of these principals had been through was actually to their own accord because schools rarely have the budget they rarely allocate the time for it and it was the same thing my study was part of this was like a broader study that was happening around schools and so we looked at teachers students well-being staff as well and it was really like similar across the board like unless you were well-being and you studied I don't know counseling or social work or psychology everyone else actually hadn't undergone the training. And when you spoke to the students flip side, it was like, this teacher made me feel comfortable so I could open up about X, Y, Z, or I said this thing and no one ever noticed, or like, I didn't feel comfortable because I told one of my teachers I had anxiety and they brushed me off or whatever. And so I think really increasing the literacy amongst educators is really important because that provides better outcomes for kids. If we have healthier happier kids and mentally and physically healthier and happier kids you're going to have better academic outcomes that's going to ultimately have that ripple effect as they get older my interest in youth research came about because I did a bit of a study around resiliency when I was in my third year and a bigger group cohort through that research had found that the, the lowest resiliency period is 18 to 25 and that's because that's when you're transitioning. That particular study didn't look at anything younger, but if we had, I would anticipate that the ages would be around 12 to 25 because that's where all of your big life changes are happening. You're navigating the world. When people say that teenagers are being dramatic about stuff, they're allowed to be. Their world is as big as school and family and friends, and that's all they know. So everything is happening for the first time and the world is constantly crashing down. But if you support them and you equip them with the tools. It doesn't mean that they're not going to have problems later in life. It just means that when they have problems, they've got the tools to deal with it, which means they're going to be more resilient as adults and they're going to have better outcomes. They're going to be more emotionally within that space to be able to cope with things. That was the research down in like the youth mental health space. And I think I'm still really passionate about that. I would love to continue working in schools down the track. At the moment, the reason I've taken a step back is to be able to work a little bit more on like the lead side of things, get that up and running, dedicate some space and time to it. But I'm super passionate about youth 
mental health. And we're actually, we're doing a series of events through Umid for Youth Week because we've gotten a grant this year. So we're really excited about that. But we're taking a multicultural lens on it. With my other research, it was in my milestones. This part hasn't been published yet. But what I essentially wanted to see was I have been talking to people and we think that these issues that we have culturally for us, so, you know, difficulty setting boundaries with our families, migrant mentality around scarcity and how we view work and all that sort of stuff, like the conflict that we have with our parents, the lack of understanding between someone who's bicultural and someone who's a first-generation migrant, all of these different things, the different difficulties and how they create anxiety and stress and how they manifest in us. Are these actually issues or am I just like, am I just making it up? It was really cool to do the research in that space as well. It was an online survey and questionnaire because it happened during COVID, but we collected all of this data and we're able to see that like, yes, you know, there are these core Asian values because the target audience was Asian Australians and how when people move from a different country to here, the things that they choose to hold on to and why we choose to hold on to those things maybe a little bit more close than we tend to. And then the influences that has on like the second generation and the pressure as well, depending on kind of like where your parents sit with things. So for example, if your parents don't really speak a lot of English and you had to be the like translator for everything you've had to grow up a little bit earlier you're like eight years old on the phone to places like the tax office or like trying to figure things out and even if you're coming from a family that can speak English and they're skilled workers and they're coming here for that sort of stuff I know in my own personal experience I was the first person to go to uni in this country. So navigating year 11, 12, and then university was just like, what is happening? Because like my parents didn't know what was going on. So you have to figure out all of these little bits and pieces on your own. And that's the case for a lot of things. And then you're translating those things back to them and trying to make sure that you get it right for yourself so you can get it right for your younger siblings. Or coming down to what's culturally appropriate back home might not actually be the norms of the country that you're living in. So for example, I know for a lot of my clients, some of the issues are around um, having autonomy. I guess what you would call like a living life when you're a little bit younger. So going out, dating, all of these things, like your expectations, the values and the understanding around that is very different. And again, for different people manifest in different ways, but manifest in a way that there is a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression, a lot of stress that's associated with it so that was really cool research and I actually do go back and I draw from that for the work that we do at Amid but there's some good research around this sort of stuff that's like emerging in the future and it was really interesting because when I was doing that study I found that in Australia at the time there really wasn't anything that had been done since maybe the 2000s, maybe the 90s but it wasn't specific demographics or anything and a lot of that literature really came from America. It's been an interesting Right, because in my mind, 49% of Australians are either born overseas or have a parent born overseas, yet we didn't have a, like a nat- national like multicultural mental health service that focused on culturally responsive practice, yet we don't have enough research to back things up. And like I said, in the, like, the last four or five years, that's been increasing, which is really wonderful to see. I'm surrounded by some fantastic people doing some fantastic work, but we have such a long way to go and there's just yeah. Yeah. so many different issues to cover. Absolutely. And so many layers of complexity. So many layers of complexity and understanding. I think we we would come back to the original question at the start as well around why we started Omid. In my, I think after doing all of these different pieces of research, being in different areas as well and getting an understanding of things, even just working on the ground, what I've learned is that mental health in Australia is quite naturally 
grounded in a Eurocentric lens. Things like culturally responsive practice, that stuff takes a backseat. Unless you've been in that position, you don't really understand why it's needed. And it's bizarre to me, again, because we have specialized mental health care for support for so many different types of niches, for example, for veterans, you're not going to be referring a military veteran to a child psychologist. So why are we referring people from our multicultural backgrounds who have specific needs to people who are not understanding? Yeah. yeah, who are not skilled in that area. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And Anushka, you've also co-authored in a book called Undefeated with professional migrant women. Yes. What were some of the challenges, the opportunities, the insights that emerged from this collaborative process and being part of that community? For anyone who hasn't checked out PMW, go and check out the incredible work they're doing for starters. Big shout out to Fabiola. She's a founder. And just for her putting this book together, challenges wise, I think sitting there and having to reflect and decide what to write upon and to write upon your migrant journey. I'm not going to lie. I had a bit of an existential crisis because one was I'm like, am I worth writing about? Was one of the thoughts that came into my head. And the second thing that came up was like, there has been like, we've been on the go for such a long time as a migrant. There comes a point where you actually, you never actually sit down and reflect on your life. And that was the first time where I sat down and I processed how far we'd come, what the migration process had been, all of the things that I'd been through and where I was right now. That that in itself was a bit of a challenge because we're not used to sitting down and processing. It's like I said, we're always on the go. It's always the next thing. It's always overcoming the next thing as well. But it was beautiful in the sense because it was nice to be able to sit down and process and reflect. And it's actually something that's taught me to do that more often. I know as a therapist, I tell other people to reflect on stuff, but rarely get the time to do it myself. This was one of those activities where it was nice to be able to sit down and do that. Opportunities wise, it was really beautiful to meet all of these wonderful other women who had such incredible lives, who just pushed through so many adversities and have shown so much resiliency. And it's given me the opportunity to really connect with some people that I probably wouldn't have otherwise known of, build some really beautiful friendships. But as part of it, we've been doing like a bit of an undefeated tour. We've been doing different events throughout the year and we'll probably continue doing them. But one of my favorite, and I do a lot of panel discussions and public talks and stuff, but one of my favorite ones from this year was we did a talk down at the Ivanhoe Cultural Hub. And it was me and two of the other co-authors. And it was just such a beautiful, organic conversation about our experiences and just being able to talk about those things and other people relating back to it and feeling seen and heard. It's just such a beautiful experience. And if you haven't read the book yet, highly recommend it. I'm a little bit biased, but so in the last couple of weeks, I've had three or four people come up to me and be like, oh, if you haven't already, you should read Undefeated. I'm like, yeah, I'll look into it. So it's good to hear that feedback from other people that I, I don't actually know and probably don't know that I've got a story in there as well, but it was really beautiful, the whole thing. Amazing. Amazing. What are some projects or initiatives that you've come across recently that you feel are creating some really powerful social change? Oh, I don't even know where to begin. There's so many. I'm going to start naming them because I think listing them is probably best. So we've got after they upcycle basically secondhand clothing, go on the website. And I'm going to do a really poor job of explaining this, but if you send through your clothes, Basically, they recycle like secondhand clothes and it's to 
support with the whole fast fashion industry side of things and upcycle all of those into new material that didn't get sold back, I think, essentially. But after has been really amazing. I would look into them. Who else is doing amazing work? Adams. The Australian Institute for Diversity and Mental Health is brand new. They are actually are doing their official launch, I think, in October. But they are focusing on supporting different organizations and also communities that, that are working within this multicultural mental health space. I would definitely watch that space. That's a really great way to get connected to other organizations. Allied Collective is doing some fantastic work in terms of the social impact space. Shakti Melvin is doing fantastic work as well within the mental uh, health space specifically. There's a lot of fantastic organizations doing work in much needed areas. I think what I've noticed, at least in the last year or so, is I've been connecting with a lot of people who are filling gaps in the system. So for example, with International, they collaborate with us on our Connect International program. They are providing support to people who are coming from overseas. So if you need migration agents or you need those resources, it's been so difficult for a lot of international students to have that support and those resourcing. Yet now there's an organization that does that. Stint Community is another one that's fantastic. They support actually international students as well, but after you finish studying and they have this amazing online community where you can go on and you essentially get the support to find jobs. You also find the support to make new friends and connect with people. They're doing a fantastic job. Adam and well, it's part of Solace, which they're doing all this fantastic work in multicultural mental health and connecting the communities. I've met a lot of people that are on our advisory committee or even working for me through Solace. And I bet that the work through Adam is going to be even better than that. There's so many amazing orgs out there doing such fantastic work. And I think... It's worth keeping an eye out on this space because there is going to be a few things up and coming in the next year. We're very excited to like hype everybody up and push that out there as well and provide the support where needed. But I'm feeling super privileged to be around people like this at the moment and be around other organizations. Mm, Fantastic. And to finish off, what are some books or resources that you would recommend to our listeners? As a therapist, at the moment, I would recommend Atlas of the Heart by Brene Brown, The Alchemist, if you haven't read it already, The Happiest Man on Earth, also a beautiful book, The Resilience Project. And if you're in your 20s, The Defining Decade. Those are usually my recommendations when people are like, how do I change my mindset? I'm like, these are the ones to head towards. Brilliant. Love it. Anushka, thank you so much for your generous insights and your time. No, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Impact Boom. You'll find links to the initiatives, people and resources mentioned in this podcast on impactboom.org. Please leave your comments below and remember, we'll be publishing fresh inspiration and insights to help you create positive impact every week on the website, Facebook page and Twitter.